0: Hello, welcome to live from Cap Times Idea Fest. I'm Eric Lorenson with the Capital Times. Over the course of the coming days, we're bringing you recordings of interviews and conversations from our first ever Idea Fest at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Today, a conversation with Gloria Ladson-Billings, the UW Madison education professor and author, talks about what it takes to better serve students of color in K-12 schools. In this discussion, moderated by Cap Times reporter Amber Walker. All right, let's get started. I hope you enjoy the talk. Do you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay.
1: Well, good afternoon, and I'm not sure whether it's an issue of we don't have any Packer fans, or you know why, why you people are here uh, is, is a question in my mind, but. Uh, I'm Gloria Latson-Billings. I am beginning my 26th year uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I am the Kellner Family Distinguished Chair of Urban Education. That's a long title to just tell you that I am um, deeply committed to educating kids in urban communities. Um, One of the real joys of my life is that I get to see kids in urban communities across the country. So while we will be specifically talking about Wisconsin, and maybe more specifically Dane County, I will be bringing to my um, responses things I'm seeing around the country um, that help me make better sense of what's going on with our kids.
0: So um, that kind of leads me to my first question. Um, um, how does the, the political and social makeup of Wisconsin lead to the academic results we see for students of color, particularly black students?
1: So she started off with the hard one, right? <laughs> um, you know, let, let's be clear about what Wisconsin looks like. It has somewhere between a 5 and 7% African-American community. Those communities are concentrated in Milwaukee. Dane County, Racine, Kenosha, and Beloit. So most of the physical space of the the state is populated by white students. So in some ways it's hard to get a largely white state to pay attention to the needs of what it sees as a rather small minority. But if our thinking stays there, then it'll be the next group. You know, the, the next group that'll be struggling will be well. what's happening with Latino students, what's happening with uh, Southeast Asian immigrant students. Um, so we do have to develop a perspective that lets us see what I like to call the least of these as our kids, that, that we have a commitment that runs broader than kids who look exactly like us who have had experiences exactly like us. And in those places where I've seen success for uh, African American kids in particular, which I study, there have been those places where people have made a broader outreach and have decided that, you know what, all of these kids matter to us
0: in a particular way, and if they're
1: not doing well, then we're not doing well.
0: And um, do you think it's possible to achieve schools that are culturally and linguistically responsive, um, given that context?
1: Um, I think we have to think about it as a project. And what do I mean by project? You know, one of the biggest projects that we are engaged in is a project called democracy. And there is at any moment we could have given up. I tell you right now, and you unfortunately are sitting with somebody who used to be a history teacher. <laughs> We could have given up at a constitutional convention, because people were fighting. They were saying this is not going to work. We could have given up in 1812. We could have given up at every juncture. But the project is that important. So let's not lose sight of the bigger goal. So we can talk strategically, and we can talk tactically, But we can also think more expansively and say, what are the things we ought to be doing that will draw us closer to that? I think uh, one of the things that is a hallmark of education is we we, we latch on to something and it doesn't work in like two years, so we're through with it. Um, When I do international travel to schools and I see innovative and creative things that happen in the schools. And I asked them, well, where would you get this idea? It, the answer's always the same. Oh, we got it from the US, you know. In Japan, in lower schools in Japan, they have open classrooms. And I said, why are you guys having these you know, open classrooms and kids are kind of making their own decisions? And they said, oh yeah, we got that from you. You guys just didn't stick with it, you know. It's the same thing that happened with the Japanese car industry. How did they, you know, jump ahead of us? because they actually listened to Deming and said, that's probably a good idea in terms of how we make cars. So I always say to my students, Americas are still the greatest innovators in the world. We are the worst implementers. We will always have the idea. But if that idea doesn't come about quickly, we have no patience. We're seeing it through. So back to this notion of the culturally, linguistically, we're just starting to do this. We're just really thinking this through. So why do we expect it to be done in a year, maybe even five years? It's a longer term project.
0: And um, can you think of any examples of like school districts or individual schools across the country that are doing um, culturally and linguistically responsive teaching well?
1: Well, one of the things I have a, want to have a close eye on right now is the entire state of California, because California has gone from banning bilingual education with the UNS Amendment to last year. You know, my, n- maybe not everything made you happy about <laughs> November, <laughs> but last year, California voted for Proposition 58, which revives bilingual education. And so the state is gearing up and saying, you know what, this is what we have to do. This is what we're going to have to commit. So I'm very interested in watching that as a statewide effort. I also am interested in individual schools that do certain things. So I've been um, very connected with a school in Washington, D.C., Baloo High School, Frank Baloo High School, which is the second worst performing high school in the District of Columbia uh, system. But I, have, I know the principal. I've known her for a long time. She's been there four years. Last year, now rem- remember, I just said it's the second worst performing high school, and it is all African-American because DC is that segregated. Last year, for the first time in that school's history, all 220 of its seniors, all of them, applied to and were accepted into at least one college. Been on NPR, been in the Washington Post. I mean, it's been a big deal. So they are in what she calls the midst of a culture change. We're going to stop saying kids can't. So I guess last week, I was in DC last week, and last Wednesday was the day that all of this year's seniors had to sit down and begin doing their applications. And she said the goal this year is that you get into at least two. Uh, It was an interesting experience last year. I remember one little young man, I shouldn't say little boy, because they are adolescents, but one young man running up to her and saying, Dr. Rees, Dr. Rees, I got into Penn State. Where is Penn State? (laughs) We laugh because, you know, we're a college-going community. We know all of these things. But think about this. This kid's going to be the first member of his family to get this letter and that says, you have been accepted. So there are those places where I think people are not afraid to do uh, experimentation. I think that's a challenge for us in most schools. We take an all or nothing approach that everybody's got to do this or we're not going to do it. And in the places where I've seen some movement, schools have been willing to say, let's try an experiment. Everybody doesn't have to try this, but let's try the ninth graders do X. Or uh, in the same school, Baloo High School, she has a black boys academy. Now, it's a co-ed school. But she said, you know, the first 60 boys who would like to be in a gender segregated environment, we're going to work with you. It works so well that this year the Girls Academy is off the ground. Now, she still has a comprehensive high school. She still has a high school in which kids are, um, boys and girls are sitting in the same classroom. But there are some kids who have elected to be in a gender, single gender classroom. The idea is not to turn the whole school into a single gender school. But to experiment, so that what, what do we learn from that environment that might be helpful for the overall school? I've been telling some folks, I just got back from the UK, and one of the things that was on the cover of every tabloid is that there is a school that decided everybody was going to wear the same uniform. So even the girls have to wear the trousers. And you would have thought, I mean, you got Kim Jong-un in trousers. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) seriously? Uh, And you may remember the, the news commentator, Pierce Morgan, who took over for Larry King here. So Pierce Morgan is back in the U.K., and that was his alma mater. And he was having a fit over the trousers. So it's that kind of approach. I said, this is so typical of a school to just make everybody do something. Without a real conversation about what sense does it make? what if they had said everybody can wear whatever uniform they want to wear, right? That would have then allowed girls who wanted to wear trousers to wear trousers, but girls who wanted to wear the skirts to wear skirts, and perhaps some boys who wanted to wear skirts to wear skirts. But we tend, I said you know, as I said, we tend in education to have an all or nothing approach. And I'm hoping we can be much more flexible in thinking about what might work in this setting for this time with these children. Now, that's a lot of thinking. It's a lot of consideration. But I think it is the only way that we will ensure that we are meeting the needs of all kids.
0: Um, do you think it's typical for school systems to like incorporate student voice into what they're doing?
1: <laughs> um, I should I should say yes because I know my superintendent's in the room, right? <laughs> in Madison we do. Uh, I I think that students have figured out that they're often asked to participate, but their participation is limited. Uh, I was in a school in Portland, Oregon um, last spring, and these kids were watching a video of their school board and their school board has a student member. And that student member was actually in the room while these middle school kids were watching the school board meeting. And if you know anything about middle school kids, they have very few filters. That's where I started out, you know. They will tell you in a minute, oh, I don't like that dress you got on, you know. (laughs) they, they, they They have no filters. And so when the video went off, and I I think it was supposed to be an example of student voice and student participation, the first thing that one of the middle school students said is, yeah, but she didn't hardly say nothing. And it was true. She was there and she was at the table. But the kids could see right away she was just at the table because they claimed they want to have student voice. She didn't really engage in debate. And they really challenged her. She was in the room, and and they said... You know, they just got you there. You know, why don't you speak up on certain things? And she talked about some of the limitations. So I think we say we
0: want student voice. I'm not sure we know how to hear their voices. And um, you have an experience um, working in the classroom as a teacher and are now um, teaching the next generation of teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any things that you wish Um, teacher preparation programs would be more intentional about? Oh, that is a long list.
1: Um, I think one of the things I think we haven't figured out is uh, coming in what makes a good teacher. So we use the same kind of rubrics that every other program on this campus does. We look at grades. We look at test scores. We claim to look at experiences, but the truth of the matter is that most of the people who apply to our programs know how to write the kind of essay. I mean, they're the winners. Let's let's be clear. We get the people who have won at education all along. Uh, I actually have, in my background, an experience of seven years on the university's athletic board, as well as uh, serving as the campus's uh Rep to the Big Ten. I cannot tell you how many athletes actually are interested in teaching. But we don't make it easy. The conversation between athletics and the School of Education is non-existent. Uh, some of you may remember an athlete, who was a star athlete, uh, Anthony Davis. And I was Anthony's advisor. And the first day he came on campus, he came to my office and said, I know that football is paying the bills, but my heart's desire is to be a teacher. I cannot tell you how many hours went into me negotiating between Coach Alvarez and the School of Education for one student, because we don't have a mechanism, and yet many of those young students, those athletes will say the thing that made a difference in their life was education. And I would love to participate in it. So I don't know fully how we get a broader swath of folks to commit to teaching as a career. Um, The teaching force not only here in Wisconsin but throughout the nation is the exact opposite of the student force. There is an inverse relationship. We are much more likely to have a white female teacher where our schools are becoming blacker, browner, uh, linguistically um, more
0: complex. And yet, that's not who's coming into the field. And when you think about like building relationships between um, students and teachers, um, do you have any tips for educators who <laughs> want to like immerse themselves in the community that their students live in and um, grow in if they're not members of that community. Because you know that, like you said, our teachers are more likely to be white and female, but the students that they're teaching don't necessarily reflect those identities. Right,
1: And teacher preparation is not exempt from this notion of all or nothing. We tell all of the teachers, oh, you should go make home visits. Well, that's not a good idea. Because everybody really doesn't want you in their home. Some people believe you come into their home and you judge them. Um, some people are embarrassed. Some people are just not comfortable. Yet, we want to have a closer relationship with parents. So we have to develop sort of individual relationships that say, where would be a good place for me to connect with that parent? Um, the other thing that I think that teachers should consider is thinking about kids out of school time. Just because you come into a community, it doesn't mean the community is supposed to celebrate you. What if you go into a community to, to something that's already going on? Um, I, I remember some years ago, and several superintendents ago. I remember the superintendent just showed up at church one Sunday. She didn't ask to be acknowledged. She didn't tell the pastor she was coming. She just showed up at church. She just sat in the congregation. And yet there were families who said, wow, really appreciate she did that. Um, We had another woman who used to be the librarian at Lincoln School on the south side. She did establish a formal relationship. And she said to the pastor, she said, if you would give me one 10-minute segment once a month, that I'd like to just come before your congregation and share one of the newest books that exists in our school that kids could check out. When she did that, what we found is that, number one, kids were excited. They were like, oh, I know her. She's at my school. Of course, they wanted that book, whatever book she was saying. (laughs) But what I noticed when I went into Lincoln School that this was a woman who had absolutely no management problems with kids. Because she made herself familiar in a way. So I think we think it's a big, elaborate to do, but sometimes it's just merely showing up in a community environment where people already are, in which you express your humanity and recognize theirs.
0: When you published um, The Dream Keepers, which is a seminal text in, um, literature about teaching black students. Um, You mentioned that there was not um, much research on the teaching explicitly of black kids. It was through a lens of multiculturalism. Has this changed in 2017?
1: I think there's a lot more um, literature out there. I think there's a lot more attention. I think what made The Dream Keepers an important book was less that it was focused on black kids and more that it was focused on black kids as normal. I didn't ask the question about what was wrong with those kids. I asked the question about, well, what's really right about them? And what happens in a classroom where teachers actually get it right? Um, Almost all of the literature, uh, when I was coming out of Stanford, almost all of the literature was focused on failure. And so when I went in and do my first computer search and plugged in the uh, descriptors, African-American or black, and education, within two clicks of the computer, I got a cross-reference that said, see culturally deprived, see um, disadvantage. culturally disadvantaged. I-, I wasn't looking for that. But that's the way the literature is organized. So there was a presumption in the literature of deficit. There was a presumption of disadvantage. And so I think perhaps. The quote, "revolutionary thing I did," was asked a question that wasn't a, wasn't deficit um, grounded. It was like somebody is obviously able to teach black kids. I got an N of one right here. <laughs> okay, somebody was able to get me through college, to get me through Stanford. So somebody knows how to do it. Now, of course, I'm being facetious with the N of one. The the least discussed group of kids are successful African-American students. Uh, Often when I talk to teachers, I'll ask the question, who is the highest performing subgroup of students in our schools? And I get typical responses of generic notions of Asian-Americans. Sometimes people are specific about Chinese American students, uh, Asian Indian students. The truth is that the highest performing group of kids, subgroup of kids, are Nigerian. Last several years, the kids who have gotten into all eight Ivies have been Nigerians. But there are also African American kids who are just outstanding. Last year, I don't know if you saw the group of the quadruplets, four boys that all went to Yale. The funniest part of that story for me is that three of them wanted to go to Yale, one wanted to go to Princeton. They had gotten into all of them. He's like, I can't convince them to come to Princeton. So yeah, I guess I'll go to Yale, too. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Another little African-American boy graduating, I believe, from Johns Hopkins, 14 years old, in engineering physics. And his 11-year-old brother is about to enter this year. So we know that there are those exemplars. But for the most part, we carry in our head this notion that these kids can't. And so if there's any way that I can push the discourse, if I can change the debate, is to get the adults who surround our children to stop saying that, to stop presuming that our kids cannot do things. Um, The example in my own household is my daughter is a math whiz. Nobody else in the household is. And when her older brothers figured out that she was doing all this incredible math, they were like, does she know the rest of us can't do this? I'm like, shh, don't tell her, right? When she was a student here, whenever she couldn't think of anything else to do, the courses to take, she would take a math course. And I said to her one day, I said, well, do you want to be a math major? Oh, no, I'm not interested in being a math major. I said, well, why do you keep taking these math courses? She said, because it's easy. <laughs> Parental calculus is easy. Yeah, it's easy. I said, well, wh- why do you think it's easy? She said, look, mom, math, there's an answer. <laughs> Unlike that stuff you study, sociology, anthropology, ain't no answers. <laughs> it's whatever, you know, we think about it. She's... So for me not to know that someone in my own household is capable of something, how is it that we as teachers meeting kids every year, new group of kids, how can we make presumptions about what they don't know? I tell my own students, I said, do you actually think that Martin Luther King's third grade teacher said, oh, my God, it's Martin Luther King. <laughs> She didn't. She said, oh, my God, third grade, and I got another preacher's kids, and everybody know how bad they are, right? <laughs> so we don't know who's in the room. And that's the, that, that's the spirit that I want every teacher to go into a classroom with. us. I have no idea who's in this room. What came out of the study in the Dream Keepers was one, and I got that from one of the teachers. She said, you know, I go in the room, and I tell the kids, I know my, I know my next doctor's in here. I don't know where he or she is sitting, but I know I know they're here. Oh, I know my attorney's here, you know. And they just go through this whole notion of what's the potential, what's the possibility. And I feel like a lot of what has happened as we look at at our education systems is that we've lost that sense of possibility, the sense that things could be
0: better and we could do better. Um, we talked a little bit about. Um like, your daughter's experience um, in math and how she had some struggles with some of her teachers. Um, Do you think that, like, despite, you know, having college-educated parents, how can um, African-American students still, like, take charge of their own educational experiences?
1: Well, also... I talked about the way the literature is organized and maybe the way the adults are speaking to kids, but we also have to remember that the kids themselves have internalized this notion that they're not capable. You know, they think, oh, that kid must be the smart kid. I can't be the smart kid. So one of our challenges is convincing kids of their own capability and sense of possibility, of reminding them that they they can do certain things. Um, And I think that's a big struggle. I think um, far too often what happens in our school is that we are not evaluating what kids know. We're evaluating what they have. Um, I hope I can make this story short enough. I have this sort of stock story, and I actually ended up in a courtroom in South Carolina as an expert witness all about this story. And the story is about the toothpick bridge If you've heard me tell this story, I apologize. Uh, But my daughter was in middle school. They were at an assignment, and they were given 100 toothpicks, and they were supposed to make a toothpick bridge. And the bridge had to be substantial enough to hold the math book. So, of course, my daughter comes home with her little baggie of 100 toothpicks. Um, But I've already figured out that this is really not about the toothpicks. This is about a hot glue gun, because <laughs> if you don't have a hot glue gun, you ain't making no toothpick bridge. Okay? You can't do it with Elmer's. So right there, you've got a kind of built-in inequity. You know, the teachers felt like we were being equitable because we gave everybody 100 toothpicks. Well, actually, you're not being equitable because I got a box of 250, and I could make a prototype. Which you know we did. So my daughter calls and says, mom, can you get a hot glue gun? I'm like, sure, no problem. I'll stop at Joanne Fabrics. I'll get this glue gun. But she's also in a classroom with kids who I think are equally as intelligent. But they happen to live on Ally Drive. And when they make a call about a hot glue gun, their answer is, not till Friday. When I get paid, I can't, I can't get it today. So they're already out of the game. The other thing that happens over this, hot, over this uh, toothpick bridge is, as I said, I had 250 already. I work here at the university. I have colleagues in the College of Engineering, <laughs> <laughs> I have colleagues in civil engineering. And it's not that difficult for me to pick up a phone and say, listen, we gotta make this bridge. What is this gonna take? My daughter is at home with two college-educated parents, and so after the calls and the internet searches, we are fine. We made the prototype that didn't quite do it, so now we're making the real thing. We've got the bridge, and at this time, I say to her all right, you need to go to bed because you got to get up early tomorrow and get your bus. And my husband says, bus? Oh, you're not taking my bridge on no bus. (laughs) Because that's now how invested we are in this. But it also means that she has another resource, right? Somebody with the flexibility of a schedule that they can take the time to drive her in with the toothpick bridge because the truth is once you put it on the bus the kids are like let me see it let me see and by the time it gets passed through the bus you don't have a bridge anymore and when I got home that evening I said to my husband I said well how did it go he said well it went okay he said but you know some people had theirs on a board uh some people had some little trees and, and some car we could have had that <laughs> uh, and teachers are human beings even though it's about the bridge you can't Dismiss the aesthetics, right? You see that. Like, oh, that's really nice. <laughs> I'm saying all this to say, but we still got the kids who, when they called to ask about getting a hot glue gun, just couldn't make that happen. And I shared this with the teachers. And they said, well, you know, we gave the 100 to." I said, I, you know, I, got, I get that that's what you tried to do. But you didn't really think through how inequity was built into the process. What is it that you want to know? And what is it that you want the kids to know? Here's what they want the kids to know, that triangles are reinforcing structures. So one of the things you could have done is had a bank of hot glue guns, a bunch of toothpicks, told kids you can only use 100, and your assignment at home is to design your bridge. Then you come in here and make it. Now, once again, there'll be kids who'll have help. But it still will cut down on the sense that what got rewarded in that assignment was what some kids had, not what they know. And so to me, that's our biggest challenge. How do we really assess what our kids know as opposed to what they have?
0: Um, Here's a good one. Um, What pedagogical innovations do you feel most hopeful about? And which are the most promising?
1: So one of the things that I think people um, don't really understand about pedagogy is that it is really context specific. I have a a teacher course in the spring called Culturally Relevant Pedagogy. And I begin it with three video clips. One is a very familiar one. Most of you will recognize. it. It is that segment of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where Ben Stein is a teacher. And he's at, he's teaching about uh, economics and the Laffer curve, and he's answering every question. Right? He asks the students a question, anyone, anyone, and then he gets the answer. My students agree that that's not good pedagogy. The second clip is a woman that I had a chance to meet in New York City, um, named Kay Tolliver. and Kay is a math math ed, math teacher who. Um, They did a whole series on called Good Morning, Miss Tolliver, because she's very innovative. And I'm telling you, Kay got everything she got. Balls in the air. And the kids are, I mean, it's just so engaging. And she, she passes out a whole bunch of stuff and asks kids to sit and talk about how mathematics would be implicated in the career that's associated. So if you've got a hockey mask, if you've got a basketball, if you've got a paintbrush, who would use it? And how is math tied to it? And so it's a wonderful look at thinking about mathematics. So now we all agree that that's a good teacher. Then I show them a clip from the Paper Chase, starring John Houseman. It's the first day of class at Harvard Law, and he has this booming voice, and it's a, you know it's a big lecture hall, and he starts out. Mr. Hart, you know, and he makes Timothy Bottoms stand up. And he just grills him. And, I mean, by the end of the segment, uh, Timothy uh, Bottoms is running out of the classroom to the restroom to throw up. He's, He's just been so traumatizing. We have a very interesting discussion about whether John Houseman is a good teacher. Some people, oh, he's horrible, you know, he berated the student, da, da, da. But then when I walked them back through, I said, first of all, who are these students? Harvard Law students. Shrinking violets? I don't think so. These are people who have worked hard to get in front of everybody else so they could be there. And then what's the discipline? Law. What's the nature of law in American jurisprudence? It's adversarial. big part of being a litigator is being able to argue. So is it really an inappropriate pedagogy? Yeah, if he was teaching third grade. But he's teaching the best and the brightest. At least that's what we've called them. In a subject field that requires that kind of persistence and ability to argue, so, so we think we know what good teaching is, but it's so specific it is context bound when I've given lectures in China, you know I really want the students to interact, but that's not that context doesn't allow that that would be inappropriate. So we always have to be looking at what's the context what are we trying to accomplish in that context
0: um, I just thought when you mentioned that, you know, as a lawyer, adversarial <laughs> behavior is rewarded, but when you think about students exhibiting that behavior in a classroom, like while the skill could be useful, you know, 15 years down the road, in third grade, it's, you know, you get a slap on the hand for it. Are there any other, like, behaviors that when students exhibit them are um, seen as negative and require disciplinary attention but are actually
1: my great? young My youngest son... Um, Completed high school in Palo Alto, California. And that kid was what I call an irritant to the system. <laughs> Very nice kid, though, trust me. And he was irritant to the system because he wasn't a top student, but he wasn't a low student. He was, of all my kids, he is who I call truly average. I always say that. I said, Kevin, I could plop you down in Kansas, you'd be just fine. Mr. 50%, he's at that 50 percentile is good enough, right? In the high-performing schools like the Palo Alto High School, they hate those kids because they have funds from the federal government to handle the really low kids, and they really want to focus on all the kids headed to Stanford and to Berkeley and to Harvard and you know, the Ivies. They don't want a kid in the middle, but my kid's skill was his ability to get along with other people really, really, really well. From kindergarten through 12th grade, every report card says something like, you know, Kevin could be a much better student if he weren't so social. <laughs> I also was trained in anthropology, so I don't understand not being so social. I mean, he's a human being. You know, it's like, can you imagine the, you know, the, uh, an aunt teacher telling an aunt parent, you know, your kid's OK, but he's just too social? You got to, you know, if you're going to be an aunt, you got to be social. So true enough, Kevin was always considered too social. And after what had to be to me the 99th call about Kevin and his sociability, uh, I got called up to the school. And I got called up like the day after the high school had the student newspaper was published. And every high school has what I call a click map. When I teach freshmen, I make them draw the click map of their high school. There's some place where all the kids kind of can't congregate, and you can say, these kids who do this over here, these kids are over here. Well, the click map got published, so I took it with me to this meeting with the counselor. And I shit. in a five minutes into the conversation where I'm learning how social my kid is for the 99th time, I say to her, I said, you know, I noticed that the click map is in the newspaper. Can you tell me where Kevin hangs out? So she looked at the map and she says, Well, you know, I've seen him with the jocks. I said, Well, he is on the football team. Well, I've seen him with the, the tech geeks. I said, Well, this kid loves technology. I've seen him with the theater ge- Yeah, he's pretty dramatic. <laughs> uh, and she just went group by group. And here is a kid, African-American, in a school where there are only 60 African-Americans. And yet there was no group. He had not touched she, I thought she was embarrassed when she got she said, Ugh. She said, you may not want to hear this, but uh, I seen him with the stoners. I'm like, that would be my kid. <laughs> no, but he, he, he would hit every group. Now, fast forward, because Kevin's birthday was yesterday, was 48 years old. Kevin works for a Silicon Valley company. And his job is a communication between upper management and the people in those white Tyvek suits in the clean rooms. That's part of his job. His other job is with clients in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, China, Germany, and France. And when I said to him, I said, Kevin, how are you able to communicate with all these folks? He says, well, Mom, you know, you have to really listen to people. And you have to seem interested in what it is that they want to do. He says, like, when I go to Germany, Hans and Franz are not playing. They want stuff done. They say to me, hey, Kevin, let's get this done today. You know? He said, but when I slide over to France, he says, Jacques is all like, oh, Kevin, (laughs) you work too hard. (laughs) Let us have another glass of wine. (laughs) He said, if my approach is it's got to be done the way I want it done, I can lose an account. If I lose an account, I'm going to lose my job. So the very skill that schools every year said was a terrible skill for this kid to have is a skill in which he's earning a living with. It's those soft skills that we're here. The employers can teach kids the hard stuff. This is how you do X in this company. But the soft skills, like how to get along in your work group, you know, how to be considerate, how to listen, those are the kind of things we could do a better job and we could be rewarding kids and encouraging those,
0: ki- those skills, and we don't do that. Um, here's another question from the audience. <laughs> um, I volunteer at a school for kids age zero to five that mixes Early Head Start with um, kids from affluent families. Would you agree that this model can address issues of both economic and racial justice? It can
1: if the adults will participate. Now, I've been in schools where there have been a wide range of economic and racially and culturally diverse groups of kids, but I've seen the adults say and do things that have kids notice and pay attention to the differences. In other words, yeah, he can come to our house and play. No, you can't go to his house. Trust me, that kid's figured out, well, something's wrong. Why can I never go there? So it can be the right model, but the adults have to really uh, embrace it. Uh, as an equitable model in which kids get to develop the friendships along lines that they that that matter to them,
0: and um, this leads into a question I had um, in the Dream Keepers. You mentioned the differences between um, desegregated schools and integrated schools. Can you um, elaborate on that a little bit?
1: So we often use those words interchangeably, but they're, they they mean different things. Uh, I went to a integrated high school in Philadelphia. Why? Because where the school was physically located, it drew on two populations, an African-American population and a largely white Jewish population. In fact, when we found white kids who weren't Jewish, we figured they had gotten kicked out of Catholic school. It's like, what you doing? <laughs> what you doing here, right? <laughs> you got kicked out of Roman Catholic. Uh, and that was integrated because we just went to that school desegregation is this process of deciding we're going to move these kids from over here to over here even though there may be a neighborhood school right so the idea is that you're going to as my colleague uh from st louis uh wash u and st louis bill Tay calls we mathematize a social problem we figure if we have x amount of kids over here then we've done this we've done the right thing so desegregation often doesn't get kids well integrated into the school so that they are participating in all of the uh, co-curricular activities that they see themselves uh, willing to and open to participate in all kinds of things. When my sons look at my yearbook, they're shocked that we have black kids on the golf team. I'm like, we was on everything. We're on a cross country, we're on the golf team, we're on the tennis team, yeah, we also on the football team. We're on everything because it was our school. Whereas often in a desegregated school because you're moving people, moving bodies, you got schedules, you got buses, you got all these things, kids sometimes can't participate fully. So they come and they go to class, but they've got to get the bus, they can't stay for after school club. They, they, they can't join student government because They don't have that kind of flexibility. So integration happens as a result of, uh, I think, people being able to make choices and fully participate. Desegregation is often our kind of uh, palliative, something that we apply to a situation that doesn't necessarily involve everybody.
0: I have another question from the audience. Um how do we change an all-or-nothing approach when the ways students and teachers and administrators are being assessed by high-stakes test and one-off surveys are used to determine what success looks like of a child's academic progress out of school? I like guess, like, how do we ba- balance the dynamic of all-or-nothing and getting away from that when high-stakes success? So
1: our assessment procedures are also our, our value statements. What we think matters. I find it interesting that some of our top universities and colleges are moving away from the SAT. They said that isn't telling us anything. And we thought it told us something. And, you know, people run around and say, you know, my SAT scores are X or Y or Z. Um, side note, I had dinner with the man who is the president of the um, College Board. And he said to me, no, ETS, ETS, sorry, educational testing services that um administers, develops and administers the SAT. And we we're having dinner and he says to me, out of the blue, guess what my SAT scores were now? I'm like, I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can tell you what mine were, you know. So I said, no, just give a guess. So I said, well, you know, mines were. 1270, so you the head of ETS. I'm going to give you 1,300. He said, 800. (laughs) I said, come by. (laughs) He said, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Now this man is the head of ETS. Yet we reify those numbers as if they mean more than they mean. And until we take on some values that say, those tests tell us something, but they don't tell us everything. We are going to be stuck in this place. We're going to, you know, right now, the people who most use our test scores are real estate agents. Because they think it says something about a neighborhood or a community. And until we say, you know what, that information, first of all, doesn't need to be out there in the public. The test scores ought to be helping teachers make assessments about what needs to happen in classrooms. The test scores ought to be helping a school district figure out what school in our district needs more help. You know, how can we get more experienced teachers in this school because their test performance. But it, it's they've become like a political football. And and part of it is thus uh, us as a nation um, we like numbers that's how we you know we evaluate stuff by the numbers who has the biggest bank account you know who has the 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 biggest salary who got this score on this it turns out that's not how all societies do it Uh, again i'll use the example of um, japan which is sort of interesting given that they have such scarce Resources when it comes to colleges. I mean, there's just only so many colleges and there's almost only so many spaces in the absolute best colleges there. Um, it turns out, though, their mindset is what we now are calling a growth mindset, that kids can get better. We are one of these few societies that when kids are struggling in something, our response is, you know, if your kid is not doing well in mathematics, it's perfectly acceptable in this society for a parent to say, you know, I was never any good, good at that. As if all of this is heritable. Not true. My dad had a third grade education. What, what was I supposed to say? Oh, well, that's as far as we're supposed to go. But in some of these other societies, what we say is, well, if you're struggling, it means you need some more help. That you need to work harder at something. So we always, the, the, the difference between a heritability and a growth mindset is a profound one when it comes to what we expect for kids.
0: That's another question from the audience. I'm going to paraphrase it because it's a little long. Um, so the question is talking about the experiences of students of color are look one way inside the school, but are portrayed in a different way um in how that like information is communicated to the public um so how can we persuade school systems to be more forthright and transparent in sharing with the public what they do and how they do it and how they're actually doing?
1: I think the challenge in that question i don't I don't wanna um gloss over it is that there's a specificity of experiences that kids are having. And so even though we have a system, our kids are in classrooms with individuals. And some kids are having horrible experiences. And some kids are not. So how is it that the system can share everything, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, I'm always I've always been in favor of what I guess we could loosely call an ombuds person, where there's someone outside of the system who can speak to the system. I, I I have a hard time believing that teachers wake up in the morning saying, "Oh, good, I'm going off to fail some more kids." I I just don't believe that. I I, I don't believe that anybody wants to do that. But I do believe that when people have failure experiences with kids, they look for an explanation. And often the explanation is outside of them. So it must be the parents. Okay, It's the community. It's the peers. And so if there's anything that I would want to be able to do with our teachers, is really to build their self-efficacy, in which they say, you know what? I'm responsible for there's 150 kids who come through here today if they're a high school teacher or for the 27 kids who are sitting here if they're an elementary teacher, and I'm going to do everything within my power to ensure their success. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to believe that they cannot do things, and I think that kind of Perseverance and persistence is something that we don't often reward in teachers. Um, You know, I've had teachers, I've seen teachers who have literally chased kids down. Um, And fortunately, I went through a teacher preparation program back east that kind of instilled that in me. You know, I had a kid who was skipping school every day. What he was, our kids were being bussed, they were being desegregated, and this kid would go to the bus in the morning because i started asking the cop his friends like where is he they said oh he be at the bus stop in the morning but then we don't see him he don't get on the bus and then he met met the bus when it got back and then walked home with the kids i said "Uh uh-huh all right (laughs) so once i got that information that very next day i ran out of school like a bat out of hell got in my little volkswagen beetle went straight to his house and when he walked in the door his book bag oh I was sitting on the couch <laughs> now I have people who say oh I can't believe you went and did that but that mother didn't know I can't blame that mother she she's sending him out every day preparing him believing he's going to school and he's coming back every day like he he was now the end of that story is he's one of the few kids that I didn't that I retained because I, I have a real... Sticking in the crawl about retention. I, I, I don't think it does nearly as much as we think it does. And in fact, the research suggests that the biggest predictor of dropout is retention. Because it's important for kids to be in their age cohorts. It really is. But I retained this kid mainly because he hadn't been at school. You know, wh- what is it that I could say you passed when you missed all of this school? So I retained him and years later, I was on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania. uh, I think it's probably right before I was headed off to Stanford. And this young man, who was like 6'4", confronted me and said, do you remember me? (laughs) Now, I grew up in West Philly. Pennsylvania, the University of Pennsylvania is in in West Philly, so I'm looking for escape routes, like (laughs) how to get up out of here. I said, Mm, I'm, I don't think I do, I'm, you know, because he was so big. I had middle school kids. and He said, I'm Dewey. Okay, then it all came back to me, right? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I do remember you. He said, yeah, you left me back. I said, yeah, I know. And then he said, it's the best thing anybody ever did for me because it took me out of a peer group that I didn't have any business being with. But I wanted to be with them, and I wanted to hang with them. And in the fall, I'm going to school right here at the University of Pennsylvania. So I was like, yeah, I did something right, you know? (laughs) But but what I'm saying is you you, you have to invest in the kids in ways. You have to persist. You have to believe. Uh, I used to always tell my students, treat the kids like they're your kids. But now I have five grandkids. Don't treat them like your kids. <laughs> you, you, you ain't do that well with your kids, I'm telling you. you know? <laughs> I know you did. not teach them. you didn't do that well with them. Treat them like your grandchildren. My grandchildren are absolutely perfect. <laughs> perfect. And I didn't understand that when my mother was telling me that about my kids. I was like, "Why do you let them do she to these are my grandkids? And any time they had a school problem, my mother's response was, what's wrong with that school? It was never, what's wrong with my kids? But what she was doing was telling them over and over, I believe in you. I'm committed to you and your success. So now I have five of my own. And let me tell you, you do not want me as the grandmother. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a good grandmother when it comes to schools. Because I really think my, my grandkids are special. I think they can do anything. And every kid deserves that. And unfortunately, so many of our kids, because of their economic circumstances, don't get that grandparent experience. If the grandparent is in their life, it's not being a grandparent. They're having to be the mother. And that's different. I mean, I, I, I luck out. I can feed them all kinds of stuff and tell them why they should be allowed to have a puppy and three kittens and all that stuff. But I get to send them home, right? But if you have to parent them, that's something different. And so that next level of support, and I, to me, that's one of the big things that kids who are struggling are faced with. That's the difference. It's not the difference between one or two parents, because let me tell you, it is hard to raise a kid with two parents in this society. The kids who are successful have all these layers of adult support. They've got a soccer coach. They've got an art teacher. They've got a ballet teacher. They've got a computer club. They have all these adult eyes on them all the time. If you look at the performance of African-American students on this campus as a group, our African-American athletes perform better because they're with adults a lot. You know, they got at least 20 hours over there with the positions coach and the strength coach. They don't have as much time to get into mischief, so Our big challenge is how do we surround our kids with enough caring adults? It just can't be the teacher. That's why, and I I deliberately use the term co-curricular. It's not extra. If we don't have a band up in here, it's not a good thing. Y'all saw what happened when the band was on probation and couldn't play at the Penn State game. We lost a home game. Seriously? (laughs) Why? Because we ain't had that band. That some, from from kindergarten through about 10th grade, what's motivating kids to go to school is not the academics. It's that I get to be in the the choir. I get to be in the band. I get to be in the computer club. I get to do this thing I really, really love. And yeah, I'll have to do the other stuff because they say you have to do it. And when we take that away, and that's what typically happens in urban schools, we strip them from strip away all of those kinds of things that make school really meaningful for them.
0: This will be my last question because I know we're running out of time. Okay. Um, so you talked a little bit about how teachers must um, you know, love their students as if they're their own grandkids, but oftentimes the structures that teachers are working in make it hard to do that. In the Dreamkeepers, you talked about how teachers must recognize these systemic factors that are oppressing their students and actively work against them. So do you have any advice for young teachers on how they can circumvent these systems and still keep their jobs? Okay. That's a good one. And I want
1: to go back and correct. I don't think we should... I'm, I, I, I'm very careful about using the term love. I, I, I like the term care. There's some circumstances in which it's we don't love the kids. We don't love the students. You know, If you teach in the Cook County Jail, I, you probably don't love the murderers and rapists. But you still have an obligation to them as their teacher. So what I want you to think about is that you have to care about them and about their futures, as if it had implications for your own, because it does. You know, I used to tell my students all the time, "I need y'all all to be productive citizens because I want to get my social security check. I, <laughs> I need y'all working. I don't want to be working for you. You know, so I don't want you in the system in any way that I'm still having to take care of you." The way that teachers can help around those broader systemic things is not to pretend that they don't exist. To Have kids engage and think their way through them. I'm reminded of a few years ago uh, when Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson. The school district in Ferguson sent out a directive that said to teachers, you are not to discuss what happened here in Ferguson with Mike Brown and the subsequent uh, public protests and unrest. Can you imagine anything else that was on these kids' minds? And it's one of the reasons why kids blow us off and say school is not real because it doesn't engage with their... So the idea is not that you fix the Ferguson problem, but that you have a conversation and say, what have you heard? What do you believe? What could have been different? Because the kids are weighed down with these issues all the time. So it's not, it's not the job of the teacher to try to fix the social problems. But the failure to engage them, the failure to have a conversation about them. And I don't think you lose your job because you ask, help have kids ask hard questions. Um, I think teachers lose their jobs when they engage in a kind of activism that really isn't about the kids, but it's about themselves.
0: Well, thank you very much. Can we have a round of applause for Dr. (laughs) Gloria Laxon-Belin?